The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a young girl fights to save her adopted homeworld and her friends, and robotic soldiers on the battlefield. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David F. Shirerod. This week, we bring you part two of DJ Butler's discussion with David Weber and Jane Linskold about the latest entry in the Honorverse prequel Star Kingdom series, A New Clan. But first, the news. The June hardcovers and trade paperbacks are in. Let's take a look. First up is A New Clan by David Weber and Jane Linsgold. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, and tree cats. Freshly home from an internship on Manticore, teenage Stephanie Harrington is up to her eyebrows in trouble. There's the new tree cat adoptee who needs to be kept from becoming a risk to the carefully guarded secret of just how smart the arboreal inhabitants of Sphinx really are. There's the overeager journalist whose campaign to protect the tree cats from exploitation as the newest, coolest pet on any planet could threaten the very creatures he seeks to defend. And there's the mysterious rash of weird accidents that are plaguing Sphinx's younger inhabitants, including some of those nearest and dearest to Stephanie. Next up is Robo Soldiers. Thank you for your servos. The future of cybernetic warfare is here. Robo-soldiers, they take many forms, from disembodied AI to human-like androids and more, but at their cores beat the cybernetic hearts of warriors. And these stories of hard military SF, you will journey to the battlefields of tomorrow with the veterans who have been there and the researchers developing the next phase of battle and get a glimpse into the future of warfare. New stories from David Drake, Richard Fox, Weston Oaks, Martin L. Shoemaker, T.C. McCarthy, Brad R. Torgerson, and more. And we also have Target Terror by Michael Z. Williamson. The complete Target Terror series by a master of military thrillers. Within a military that prides teamwork, strength in numbers, and camaraderie, the sniper is the outlier, the loner, the specialist whose talent can mean the difference between mission success and disaster, and often between life and death. This omnibus includes the scope of justice, targets of opportunity, and confirmed kill. That's a new clan, robo-soldiers, thank you for your servos, and target terror. All available now in hardcover or trade paperback, as well as ebook formats. Michael Z. Williamson's Target Terror may clock in at over 700 pages, but we're sure it will leave you wanting more page turning techno thriller action. So for the month of June, we're offering ebook discounts on all our techno thriller backlist titles, including Tom Crapman's Countdown series, John Ringo's Paladin of Shadows series, 
and The Dead Six Books by Larry Correa and Mike Kupari. Details and a complete list of books are available at Bain.com. And that's it for the news. Why they're doing it. Okay. You're just saying because they're aliens. I'm sorry, for me as a storyteller, that doesn't work. It never worked for me as a reader either. Um, which doesn't mean that people can't have fully realized human characters who they suddenly have do something totally out of character that leaves me just as confused <laughs> as, as to what's going on here. Um, the level of the communication, you know, the way that the way that it works out, and you and you know it right up front, right? That that uh, Stephanie's tree cat has two names depending on whose point of view you're writing in, right? He climbs quickly to tree cats, yeah. Uh, which, which, of course, as to your point, they're not articulating as words. There's a packet of information about yep. this tree cat that climbs quickly, and Stephanie names him Lionheart, right? And this is true of all the tree cats. And there's a there's a there's a lovely kind of resonance um, that. Uh, as, as a dog owner, right? It's a, it's a little bit like, from the human perspective, it's a little bit like the maybe sort of almost a fantasy that you have that your dog is understanding you better than it is, right? I mean, your dog, uh, I believe my dog has a mind and a theory of mind, right? And I know it's not like mine. And, but when I go out walking with the dog, I have dialogues back and forth between myself and the dog where I artic articulate the dog's point of view also, right? And that's sort of the tree cat interacting with these kids reminded me uh, in a very, it resonated kind of of that relationship with my dog in a very, um, I don't want to like make it sound small, but in a very charming way. It had a lot of... Um, uh, it, it felt very verisimilitudinous to me. It felt very emotionally real. Well, we had to add in an added complexity in this one because of Heartstone, who, since he has uh, his accident and can't even understand tree cats, actually most of the characters in this book have three names because when we're going from his point of view, since he doesn't know, he knows Climbs Quickly's name because he knew Climbs Quickly when Climbs Quickly was younger. But for any character he meets thereafter, we had to come in with yet another round of names. And introducing those names into the, into the narrative and tagging them successfully for the reader um, is not the easiest thing to do without getting into, as you know, Bob, mm -hmm. territory. Um, but yeah, yeah, Jane is right. I was going to make the same point that in an odd sort of way it's heartstone the 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 deaf tree cat deaf i think is the best Mind way deaf, basically. yeah he can still sense the emotions of those around him he just he just can't receive their actual thoughts okay uh so he knows when somebody is beg your pardon his send is also broken yes 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 um and the reason that Jane is mentioning that is that uh, Nimitz honors Tree Cat uh, suffers uh, uh, serious injury, which means that he he can uh, uh, he can still 
hear people, other, other tree cats, but he can't transmit anymore. His transmitter is broken, which is why the tree cats learn sign language, really. That's the point that motivates the breakthrough. But what I was going to say is that Heartstone's um, damage is central in a lot of ways to the recognition that they are actually building a new clan of the tree cats who have adopted humans. Um, now, from the very beginning, uh, Sings Truly uh, Climbs Quickly's sister, who is uh, the memory singer for the Brightwater clan. The memory singers are critical to the entire structure of tree cat society because they can project uh, in so much accuracy, anything that they have seen or experienced or heard from another tree cat, that they can share that very experience. So tree cats are not naturally as innovative as humans, but once an innovation occurs and one memory singer is read in on it, it can spread like that to the entire planetary population because one memory singer can transmit it to another and, and they can share it. So while the tree cat clans are not remotely matriarchal, all of the memory singers are female. And so they have a very strong center. They're the anchor really of, of every clan because they are literally the custodians of its history, of, of its memory, of its identity. Okay, and uh, so from the very beginning, uh, Sings Truly is saying, you know, we have to open channels of communication with, with, the, with the two legs. Uh, and the, we, we have to bring them to our side sort of thing. But I don't think even Sings Truly ever was able, at least in the early period of this relationship to conceptualize the extent to which the tree cats who bond are going to develop a communal identity as a group. We are the ones who have bonded with the two legs, which doesn't obliterate their previous identities. It doesn't take them away from being a member of Brightwater clan or what, whatever, okay? Um, but it's a sense of, just as the humans involved are in the great tree cat conspiracy what they're basically doing, I don't think I've ever got around to this point. What they are basically doing is they are simultaneously doing their best to slow down the process of whether or not tree cats are determined to be sentient on the one hand, while on the other hand, amassing as much data as they possibly can that could offset the lack of a spoken language in, in, in the balance when we're determining whether they are, you know, the, the, the rightful owners of Sphinx or not, okay? Um, and in a very real sense, this new clan that's emerging in the book is trying to do exactly the same thing from the tree cat side, but without the need to protect their two legs against an outside threat that might wipe them out to take over the planet. You see what I'm saying? They do have to defend their or be aware of threats to their two legs from other two legs, which is a semi-recurrent theme uh, throughout the books because the tree cats are very protective. Um, by the same token, the kind of person who is adopted by a tree cat is very protective going the other way. Um, 
in the in in a beautiful friendship when one of the memory singers and one of the clan elders is really really pissed off with climbs quickly after he's gotten himself almost killed i mean he's literally they think he's going to die you know kind of thing for going to rescue stephanie um stephanie at 12 basically kills uh hexapuma which is like three or four meters long okay kind of thing yeah think saber tooth tiger on steroids um and she kills it it just she mortally wounds it and it's still going to have the energy to kill her and climbs climbs quickly but climbs quickly has fought it to delay to protect her while he tries to buy time for the rest of the clan to get there to rescue him by himself and when he goes down she this this 12 year old girl attacks this this hexapuma with effectively a really really high-tech knife um and she knows she absolutely knows that she can't kill it before it kills her but she can't not do that any more than climbs quickly could not try and protect her and sings truly tells the the other members of the clan she says look you know these two are bonded they're like a mated pair and climbs quickly could no more not have come to try to save her than she could have not tried to save him or that climbs quickly and I, brother and sister, deeply beloved, would not have fought to the death to protect each other. Okay. No. And that's why I think there is a very specific personality type, human personality type that the tree cats are drawn to. Okay, I really think that that's, for me, that that's a big part of what's going on. And I have to say that one of the things that, um, that Jane interjected into the books was she really grabbed and ran with um, what happened to Carl Zivonik's first love. Um, because we knew that the Zavonic family took really heavy losses during during the plague years and so forth. But I really liked what you did with with that. Um, well, it's it's interesting when we, I was doing a lot of my work on a new clan was weirdly enough because of Weber's introductory story. Um, the plague is very important and I'm writing a story in which Cordelia who's one of our new point of view characters, Cordelia and her family exist as a family because of the destruction caused by the second wave of, of the plague. And I'm writing this book as shutdowns and stuff are happening. Yeah. It was a little bit stressful, to be honest. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. And then, um, but it was important to not make it light and fluffy and you know at one point Stephanie thinks really thinks for the first time about what the plague meant because in the back of her head you know the plague wasn't a good thing because she's not an evil person but the plague is the reason her family was able to get a bargain basement estate yeah. on stinks because stinks needed people with her parents skills the star and kingdom it, desperately needed people like the harringtons yeah yeah and so Stephanie, for the first time, really comes to terms with 
what it meant to the the society at large intellectually down that much intellectually she always understood it intellectual yeah yeah the emotional it's kind of like when and and the moment that really crystallizes it for her is when they're they're talking about well why would young young people be turning to this new drug you know what you know what's going on and and that's the point at which she's like brought face to face with the fact that she knew about carl and what had happened to his family and she deeply empathized with that once Carl told her about it. But it wasn't until Cordelia and some of the others were getting involved and she really had to come to grips with their life stories through, through the plague. Um, and there's also a, a point, and I think Jane, you inserted this, uh, and I think it's Carl who is saying that yeah, he's, uh, his, his mother, his grandmother used to tell him tales about the frontier back on earth. And one of the first things that went in in every town was a saloon, okay? And, and the whole notion of, of desensitizing her emotions, of, of, of losing control is anathema to, to Stephanie. Okay, she is so deeply invested in what's going on around her and everything else. She can't conceive of wanting to distance herself from that. It's just totally say what, as far as she is concerned. And in this book, she finally really comes to grips with that on the basis of being able to, to understand something that she didn't understand before. I think that um, you see a lot of that in the scenes with her and Trudy after the air car accident too. Um, when she's trying to, well, actually, no, that's Jessica then, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Jessica, who is, is, is trying to, to comfort uh, Trudy after this horrific air car accident that, that she was involved in. But Stephanie is reacting to where Trudy is and what's happened to her at the same time. Remember the conversation that you, you wrote with uh, Trudy telling her, you know, I'm worried about Stan, you know, kind of thing, you know, and, you know, it's not being, you know, it's not betraying somebody if you're just worried about them, right? You know, kind of thing. Poor old Stephanie, who's like, you know, you're doing that whole emotional thing here that I'm really not read in on yet. <laughs> what, I like about, what I like about Stephanie is it would be very easy to have her become a two-dimensional two superhero. But uh, for every bit of genius and everything else she has, we've, we've given her a lot more, you know, her friends teasingly call her, you know, the girl genius of Sphinx because they can tease her because they know she's actually a real person. Yeah. Uh, and I have any, to... any questions for us? We've been, we're very good at talking. You've probably noticed this. No, this is, this is fabulous. In fact, I do have one question, but, but you've really touched, I think, a, a lot on the book sort of thematically and what its emotional cores are. But, I, but and we just actually now walked up to the edge of, well, what's the story? So we have the ongoing Stephanie arc. Um, but there's also a story involving drugs. In fact, I think the tagline of the book is sex, drugs, rock and roll, and tree cats. Isn't that what the 
the tags yeah. more or less yeah yeah so and, what, and I what, think what, the next line is two out of three ain't bad we don't yeah. have a lot of sex <laughs> So uh, awesome. So what 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 do you want to tell listeners about about the what what's the what's the the at least the kind of setup for the the local plot? Okay, let me let me dive in on this and just say that Weber talks about collaboration being writing the book that one person wouldn't. And I said to him, I'd really like us to do a book that the central motif is not the bad guys are after the tree cats again. And so in this book, the tree cats are certainly very, very important to it. Um, but the central, mm, one of the central plot threads is because our main characters are the equivalent of high school students, they become aware sooner than the adults do that something is off. More accidents are happening than should, and a lot of them are happening to young people. And again, we, we always have the balancing act of creating a plot line that will give our minor, minor in terms of legal status, characters agency but at the same time, not make the adults idiots. Yeah. And so Weber came up with the very good suggestion when I said, well, how about something about drugs? Drugs is a serious problem. We evolved the idea of a drug that wasn't illegal because things can only be, be illegal if people know about them to decide whether to legalize them or illegalize them. And then Weber said, well, we can work on the idea that the Sphinxian Forest Service is stretched very thin so that Chief Ranger Shelton basically semi-authorizes them to work on something that he can't put his, to, to do the initial research, which let them stay on deck, but not have them be, you know, Nancy Drew. Well, and the other side of it is that they have to operate within the constraints of the legal system. So for example, if they don't have probable cause, they can't bug somebody to, to see what's going on. Um, Stephanie wants to. Oh, definitely. Stephanie's very direct, you know, so, well, why not? You know, and Carl is like, because unlike you, I'm not a probationary ranger anymore. And that means you're like, I have to like, I don't know, follow the law, you know, and Stephanie's like, well, darn, you're no fun. Um, and I liked uh, Nosy, okay, who starts you out when not. you first meet. You, I, got, I got emails from him. I am not liking this guy. Wait a minute. He's beginning to grow on me. Yeah. It was great. Well, the, the audition, okay. Nosey got tweaked some too, as, as we went along. Um, and well, he shows up as an annoyance at first, right? He's like, yeah. he's a reporter is who he yes. is. He shows yes. up and he's asking kind of personal prying kind of questions. And these kids in fact do have secrets. They don't want anyone really to understand what the tree cats are. Right. So yeah. The guys well, the other side of it is he really is looking for stories that will generate hits. Okay. Sure. And so there is a degree of sensationalism in, in what he's writing about. Uh, what the kids come to realize gradually as they work with him, especially after he gets the snot beat out of him by the bad guys and he, he turns to, to Carl and, and Steph, um, is that 
he actually believes in causes. Okay. Um, and ultimately he is, I am confident, going to be read fully in on the great tree cat conspiracy because with his platform and everything else, he can contribute to it. Whereas the way that he's using it now, when he's trying to protect the tree cats from being uh, victimized as pets, okay, it's actually hampering the great tree cat conspiracy's mission. Um, yeah. And there's actually a couple of places in there where Stephanie thinks, you know, if she didn't, if she were nosy, if she knew what nosy knows and not what she knows, she'd be all in favor of protections for the tree cats. And yeah. she is in favor of protections for the tree cats, but the problem is that the way that Nosy is approaching it is creating yeah. problems. Yeah. Um, so, so we've got we've got the plot thread that deals with drugs that then ties into the plot thread with Nosy Jones, ace reporter of Sphinx, so to speak, who means well but is causing problems. Um, and those two plot threads become interwoven. And um, I'm What's 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 our our um, crap? Um, the guy who's actually producing uh, Herman. The, hmm? Herman. Herman. Yes, I couldn't remember his name. Uh, Herman is another character who is kind of working his redemption um, as the book goes on, and you realize as the book goes on that. He was never a bad guy, although early on, you kind of think of him that way when you realize that he's the one who's providing this, this drug. Um, now, there was one, um, one point where Jane and I had to do some negotiating uh, because Jane wanted to send uh, Stephanie in uh, undercover to try and, and locate a source for the drugs. Um, and I was like, well, now, wait a minute. You know, she's a minor, she's 16, you know, the whole nine yards. And I'm like, but her parents let her go to another planet all by herself. Aren't yes. you being a little overprotective, daddy? Well, the problem was, the problem was that she hadn't cleared it with her parents first. And I'm like, yeah, and if you think your girls are clearing everything with you, you got another thing coming, Bucko. Well, and so, but Carl says to her, <laughs> "Forget about it. If you don't get get your parents to sign off on this, you know, uh, kind of thing." So, I think that the way what that can it I finally, say, I know what sixteen-year-old girls do a lot better than Daddy does. But I, I think that I think that the way that it worked out actually strengthened the story. It was uh, good. Um, we cooperate. We 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 found a midpoint we could meet on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's um. I like the book. Um, I I really really do. Uh, I think it. I think that it it came out of the oven well. Um. Now and we yeah. got and and keeping the tree cats front and center in the books is really important to both of us mm -hmm. because since this is their world and their culture. It's, it's great having a chance for the readers to find out not what uh, just spacefaring tree cats are like, but what tree cats at home are like. The vast yeah. majority of them who stay home. Well, yeah. the other thing about it is, okay, tree cats are top tier arboreal predators. 
Okay, so their population is actually very small for the size of the range that they have. Um, and I think that observing that, watching that in, in action, for readers who have read this, this, this part, if they then come to the scene in, um, at all costs where the uh, space station deorbits onto Sphinx and an entire tree cat clan is wiped out by an orbital strike except for one survivor who not only survives, it was a memory singer. Um, and she was visiting the, the, um, her birth clan. She'd, she'd married into the clan that was destroyed. Um, and she experienced the deaths of every member of her clan, okay? And through her, all the tree cats on the planet experience it. And it helps to understand why that's the point at which the tree cats say, you know what, we've spent 300 years kind of in this pattern with, with, with the two legs, okay, where we're still kind of adhering to Climbs Quickly's and Sings Truly's initial version of kind of a little bit concealing our intelligence of, you know, uh, to the point at which they say, you know, now it's time for us to to stop being kittens. Mm -hmm. And they announce to the humans around them that they too are part of this war. And you can't, you can't keep us out of it now that we know what, what the real stakes are. Um, so that's building the platform here, I think really helps to strengthen the reader's view and that later point earlier written but later point in in the storyline well um, and i think it's a little unfair to climbs quickly and sings truly to call them the ones who held it back because they would have pushed the limits but they I, had well, they had i mean sings truly is is a real rebel you know she in, is she is but she is the one who says in in a beautiful friendship she's the one who specifically says it may be a good idea not to let them see how clever we are right. because it's better to be underestimated than overestimated this is Absolutely. the point but, at she which, is also, but she's also to her her other side is she's pushing tree cat custom yes no oh, absolutely absolutely and i strongly suspect that had she lived long enough that she would have said, you know, it's time now. But like I said, tree cats are not really innovative. Um, they aren't quite into the, well, that's the way it was always be, been done. So that's the way it always must be done mindset. No, they're not. But custom yeah. is very important to them. Well, and once well, a consensus is reached, that consensus tends to hold until something comes along to break it. Now, I'm not saying in any way, shape or form that you were derivative. So, you know, take this with this way. But my feeling is that the tree cats are in many ways like hobbits. They're, they're home loving, clan loving, family loving, and boy, do you not want to cross them? when the time comes because they're brave, they're valiant, and they'll walk into the mouth of hell if that's what it takes. Yeah. They're um, better armed than hobbits, but yes, yes I they're agree much with better you. armed, but do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. the yeah. hobbits, the hobbits when pressed and the tree cats when pressed both show a similar level of 
Uh, don't underestimate us just because we enjoy um, staying at home with our families and raising our families and everything else. Just because we are not innately aggressive doesn't mean we're pushovers or wimps. Yeah. No, but I, we, I... Also, we also value, I mean, a sideline is one of the things I was sorry that they didn't include in the movies for the Lord of the Rings was the saving of the Shire. Oh, the, well, that was the key point of the book for Tolkien. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think the same thing could be you know, said about the tree cats because of their telepathy and because of their memory singers have many advantages over humans when it comes to avoiding pointless aggression. Mm -hmm. That said, that doesn't mean you should mistake them either as, you know, you, you know, helpless homebody nothings or, um, or they're, you know, yes, they're arboreal peak predators, but they're not, they're not rabid killing machines no. either. No, um, but what, what tree cats are is very, very tough minded. Mm -hmm. um, when, you know, when it hits the fan, okay, they really don't hesitate very much. Um, the scene in um, the, the first time in the novels where you really understand what this bond is all about is the assassination attempt in honor of the queen when Nimitz and Honor are fighting off the assassins until Planet Palace Security can get there to uh, save Protector Mayhew's family. And it's actually Nimitz who initiates, who recognizes the threat and attacks first. And this is the point at which Honor becomes the first human being who actually has a two-way telepathic link with her tree cat because he he makes her understand she has to understand she doesn't know what it is but she understands exactly what he's doing and why but it's that point at which for the first time you realize that this tree cat is not a cuddly cuddle fluffy cross between a cat and a parrot that rides around on the captain's shoulder okay i mean oh they're adorable they're cute they're and it's like if you get water on them they transmute into <laughs> you know, kind of thing but i was i was thinking when you were talking about uh the the uh the cleansing of the shire um for tolkien there was a very clear religious component sure. in that uh gandalf okay you don't need me anymore you know i'll be here you, you know what to do now and and doing it uh kind of thing i don't know how big a decision that was in leaving it out i know that jackson said that he thought it was anticlimactic um and i can kind of understand where he's coming from looking at the story arc that he was pursuing which really ends in many ways with the destruction of the ring and uh, aragorn's being crowned as far as he's concerned that's the climax of the story anything that follows after that is anticlimactic and i think it's unfortunate that he took that view not just because i love the story not just because i understand what tolkien was trying to do there but because it took away so much texture, so much of the, this is who Frodo and Sam and Mary and Pippin are. 
Okay, this is what they have become. This is what they've grown into. And to me, that's an essential part of telling the character's story right. that got left out of the movie. And so to go back to a new plan, while we have, we have the drug thread, we have the how do we deal with the reporter thread, we have the how do we deal with various romantic entanglements threads, it also, boil, it also all weaves together into a stronger thread which leads to a new clan being a very good title because there's a lot of new identities forged in this. Mm -hmm. And among both the humans and the tree cats, it really, we now have, as of this book, enough tree cat adoptees that they, both them and the tree cats need to consider. We are now, it's not just Stephanie Harrington and you know, and, and, and a doctor, it's, it's a community and it's a community with a mission. And so I feel that going forward from a new plan, we are also starting a whole new thread of concept where these people will think of themselves differently. And that's good because they should grow and yeah. mature. Well, the growth, growth and maturation speaking as a series writer, it's true within a single novel, but it's especially true if you're gonna write a series, okay? Human beings change with time and experience. If the characters in your stories don't over a lengthy story arc, then you are betraying one of your primary responsibilities as a writer, I think, um, because it's your job to play fair with your characters. Because if you don't play fair with your characters, you can't play fair with your readers. If you're not willing to allow your characters to carry guilt with them and to recognize joy and to be shaped by those two forces among many others, then you're not telling your readers a story about real people. You're telling your readers stories about a two-dimensional, maybe not just two-dimensional, but a flat character. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, to me, that's as bad as sanitizing violence in military science fiction, which is also, I think, a betrayal of your responsibilities as a writer. Um, so I'm really, 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 really pleased uh, with this book. Um, so tell me about sequels. You guys have both walked up to the sort of edge of where do we go from here? So is the sequel in the, in the works? The sequel is not yet in the works. That's my fault. Um, that thing about, you know, there's only so much David to go around. And to be honest, since I had the COVID, it's much harder for me to concentrate uh, in, in the blocks of time that I used to. I've got some of that brain fog thing. Um, a conversation like this or working to, to tweak uh, something that someone else has written in the collaboration and so forth. It's like it gives me a focus that I can hang on to to, to stay 
you know, in the groove. When I'm working on something of my own, I'll sit here and realize that I've been looking at the at the display for 15 minutes without writing anything. Uh, that is not helping when you have deadlines and stuff floating yeah. around. And from um, my point of view, I don't want, uh, because as we discussed, so much of the continuity for the honor verse is between Weber's two little cute ears there. Uh, I can't just say, I can't just say, oh, Weber, let me write a story about, um, because to me, it would be disrespectful. Well, we um, can come a lot closer to that in short fiction than we can in the novels. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. So, so it will, we both have ideas. We'll brainstorm on them when he can work it into his schedule. It's not like I have nothing else to do with my life. Um, so it's, you know, at the risk of sounding catty, I'm not looking, you know, my life is not writing sequels to Honor Harrington. It's just a really fun thing when I get to do it. Oh, the baby. Oh, the and so I'd rather have it be a good book when we get to it than a cruddy book. And I and Tony feels the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tony is completely supportive of let's wait and do a really good book, not do uh, a cruddy book. Well, I'll that and, and Tony is also very supportive of not breaking the David. Uh, she's like, she's like, David, I don't think you need to be doing that. I think you need to be like doing this over here and not trying to do 17 things at once. I'm like, but, but I, I've always said, so she says, yes, and you'll be 70 in October. And I'm like, well, be that way. Um, but it is, it is harder, especially after the COVID. And I resent it all the more because I had just really gotten back into the groove after the concussion. I did two books that I was very, very happy with. And then along came the, the COVID and knocked me back off my, off my stride, which is irksome. Um, we do have a, an underlying story arc that needs to be accomplished in the next couple of books. But that- And those, and those books will probably cover 16 to 19. So yeah. there may be a bit of a, a jump somewhere along the way. Yeah. Um, but the, um, the nature of the novel specific problems that will set them is still very much open. There's like a background task they have to accomplish, uh, uh, adversarial process they have to get through. Um, but kind of like in A New Clan or in Fire Season, um, they're dealing with very much specific to Sphinx problems with the other elements being more of a background factor that they have to bear in mind, which is what the Great Tree Cat Conspiracy is all about. So yes, there will be more, but it'll be more on Weber's timetable. In due time. Oh, oh, thank you, Jane. <laughs> It'll be on Weber's timetable. If well, it's late, go. Yes. No, well, it's not what he's saying. It's, it's not, not what not she what said. said. It's what she meant, and the and it wouldn't bother me as much if there weren't so much truth in it. I mean, hey, you know. I would rather. I really think. Honestly, I need to be able to work on a book at a time when I can pick up the phone and call you and say, 
I want to do X, is it going to completely screw up the sub story and not have you say, oh my God, I'm up to my shoulders. Hip pockets, hip pockets. Hip pockets and a whole lot of other projects. It just can't work that way because these are prequels, which means everyone says, oh, prequels, easier to write. No, prequels, harder to write. Yeah, I think they are harder. Um, I will say too that Tony figured out that in in editing me that the way my head works is it does does, yes um is that when someone suggests an alternative to me okay i have to go through and look at all the problems that suggestion would make because i have to identify them for myself before i can say okay i've got that part done now let's look at the advantages that it will offer that's why tony does not hasn't tried in 25 years to do uh uh telephone copy edit (laughs) conversations with Uh me because i'm like i'll have to think about that you know um but it's also i know it's 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 a problem sometimes for my collaborators especially collaborators who haven't worked with me a lot or don't know me as well as jane knows me um because my my initial mindset is well i don't know about that and then i'll go away and i'll send you an email and i'll say yeah that works in fact let's do this 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 and this and this you know yes and that's absolutely the case i mean i know we've run way long and and you probably want to go and cook your dinner but just you know in fire in fire season we had i i wanted to have uh, a shuttle crash and weber explained to me all the reasons that a shuttle couldn't crash and then came back with, but we can make the shuttle crash this way. Yeah. So he's not an autocrat. He's a, here's why it won't work that way. And then comes back with, here's how to make it work. If he uh, doesn't do that, I wouldn't be doing these <laughs> because I don't take being bossed around real well. Yeah. But I well, certainly it, do it, take. It, yeah, let's make it work in your larger context yeah well one of the one of the examples of that in uh, a new clan is the um the uh the skimmer park uh because jane had originally wanted to do that as counter gravity mm-hmm. and i was like okay no we can't do it that way because 300 years later we still have this problem with generating sustaining counter gravity fields that small etc 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 but maglev, yeah, I said, but we maybe we could do it this way. And so we grew that entire skimmer park yeah. out of the out of the maglev conspiracy. And see, the other thing about it is this explains why in the later books I don't have delivery guys coming sliding up to you on their countergraph skimmers to say, you know, here's your package without somehow going back and trying to retcon them <clears throat> right. into the story. Right. Yeah. But Jane so, is probably right. I think we've we're Oh yeah. We've yeah. way overdone it. Well, well, you know what they'll do is they'll break it into two and if they break it into three then you, you get more exposure. So that'll be all right. But I'll here I'll I'll wind up. Um hey, once again the book is a new clan uh out now from Bain Books and Hardcover and ebook Jane Linskold, David Weber. Thank you both very much for taking the time to talk with us today. And thank thank you you for taking way too much time to talk to us too, Mr. Butler. Totally a delight. Totally. Oh, 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 yeah, right.
And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. The interview was short, but excruciatingly painful. And by the time Johnny left, he was feeling like one of the solder targets on the laser range. The thought of having to go back out on the practice field, of having to face everyone, was a knot of tension in his stomach. And as he walked across Mendro's outer office, he seriously considered turning back and asking for a transfer to a different branch of service. At least then he wouldn't have to endure the other trainee's eyes. But as he debated the decision, his feet kept walking and outside the office the whole question of hiding suddenly became academic. Deutsch and Halloran peeled themselves from the wall where they'd been leaning as Johnny closed the door behind him. "'You okay?' Deutsch asked. The concern in his face echoed in his voice. "'Oh, sure,' Johnny snorted, unreasonably irked by this unexpected invasion of his private shame. "'I just got verbally skinned alive, that's all.' "'Well, at least it was all verbal,' Halloran pointed out. Don't forget, all of Mendro's weapons are functional. Hey, lighten up, Johnny. You're still in the unit, aren't you? Yeah, Johnny said, the hard lump starting to dissolve a bit, at least as far as I know, though Bai will probably have something to say about that when he hears what happened. Oh, Bai already knows. He's the one who told us to wait here for you, Halloran said. He said to bring you out to the practice range when you're ready. Are you? Grimacing, Johnny nodded. I suppose so. Might as well get it over with. What, facing by? Deutsch asked as they set off down the hall. Don't worry, he understands what that was all about. So do Pa and Ruma, for that matter. I wish I did. Johnny shook his head. What has Viljo got against me, anyway? Halloran glanced at him, and Johnny caught the other's frown. You really don't know? I just said that, didn't I? What, he doesn't like anyone who was born more than ten light years from Earth? He likes them fine, as long as they don't show they're better at anything than he is. Johnny stopped abruptly. What are you talking about? I never did anything like that. Halloran sighed. Maybe not in your books, but a person like Roland does his accounting differently. Look, remember our very first orientation meeting, the one he showed up late at? Who was it by used to pop his excuse? Well, me, but that was only because I was the last to arrive before him. Probably, Halloran conceded, but Roland didn't know that. And then the first evening of our actual training, you tore the stuffing out of all of us in that game of King's Bluff. People from Earth have a long history of being successful gamers, and I suspect that really put the icing on the cake as far as Roland was concerned. Johnny shook his head in bewilderment. But I didn't mean to beat him. Of course you did. Everyone means to win in the game, Deutsch said. You didn't mean to humiliate him, of course, but in a way that actually makes it worse. 
for someone with Roland's competitive streak being clobbered by a perceived social inferior who wasn't even trying to do so was more than he could take. So what am I supposed to do? Roll over and play dead for him? No, you're supposed to just continue doing as well as you can, and to hell with his ego, Doit said grimly. Maybe maneuvering you into Mendro's kennel will satisfy his lopsided sense of personal honor. If not, he hesitated. Well, if he can't learn to work with you, I don't think we're going to want him on Adirondack. Johnny gave him a quick look. For a brief moment, Deutsch's air of calm humor had vanished, showing something much darker beneath it. You know, Johnny said, striving to sound casual, a lot of times you don't seem very concerned about what's happening on your world. You mean because I laugh and joke around? Deutsch asked or because I opted to spend a couple of months hanging around Asgard instead of grabbing a laser and rushing back to help. Um, when you put it that way. I care a lot about Adirondack, Johnny, but I don't see any advantage in tying myself in knots worrying about what the troughs might be doing to my family and friends. Right now I can help the most by becoming the very best cobra I can be, and by nudging the rest of you into doing the same. I think that's a hint we should get back to practice, Halloran said with a smile. Can't fool a psychologically trained mind, Deutsch replied wryly. And with that, the momentary glimpse into his deeper self was over. But it was enough, and for the first time Johnny had a real understanding of the kind of men the army had chosen for this unit, the kind of men he'd been deemed worthy to join. And it put the whole thing with Viljo into a final perspective. To risk washing out of the cobras over what were essentially emotional flybites would be the absolute depth of stupidity. From now on, he resolved, he would consider Viljo's jibes to be nothing more than practice in developing patience. If Deutsch could bear up under an invasion of his world, Johnny could surely put up with Viljo. They'd reached an exit now, and Halloran led them outside. Wait a second. We're on the wrong side of the building, Johnny said, stopping and looking around. The practice field's that way, isn't it? Yep, Halloran nodded cheerfully. But for cobras, cross-country's faster than all those hallways. Cross-country as in around, Johnny asked, peering down the eight-story structure, heading halfway to infinity in both directions. As in over, Halloran corrected. Facing the wall, he flexed his knees. Last one to the top's a gum bumbler, and any windows you break come out of your pay. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and Audible.com. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to David Weber and Jane Linsgold for talking with us these last two weeks. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shariarod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>